Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 31. Last week, I covered the places of Shunem, Ebez, and Beth Shemesh, all found in Joshua Chapter 19, in cities within the boundaries of the land assigned to Issachar. These were the last places I'm covering found in the region assigned to that tribe. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up with the places found in the next tribe in the list, Asher. And with that, let's get started. First up is the place of Beth Dagon, mentioned as being on the border of Asher, and of course translating to the House of Dagon. So, before the city, first about this thing housed there. Dagon was an ancient Mesopotamian and Canaanite deity. Like the other deities in the interwoven polytheistic religions of that era and region, this one took on many forms. He's believed to have been worshipped as a fertility god in many places in the region, including Ebla, Assyria, Ugarit, and even among the Amorites. But that isn't why I'm mentioning him today. That, of course, is related to the Philistine city of Beth Dagon. Another city with the same name was mentioned earlier in Joshua, as a place in Judah. I'll get to the city in a few minutes. The deity was also mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament, with a temple in the city found in Asher, and another temple in Gaza. It was the temple in Gaza that was destroyed by Samson after he had been taken captive by the Philistines. There was another temple, this one in Ashdod, mentioned in both 1 Samuel and twice in 1 Maccabees. The interesting thing about the one in 1 Maccabees is it was attested to existing nearly or over 1,000 years after Samson and Samuel. More on that location in a minute. In 1 Chronicles, and after the death of King Saul, his disembodied head was said to have been displayed at the temple to Dagon. The location of this specific temple was not named. First century Jewish-Roman historian Josephus mentioned a place named Dagon situated above Jericho, meaning it was near the city, but at a higher elevation. This, too, was probably a temple, though Josephus wasn't explicit enough to make the identification definite. Circling back to 1 Samuel, along with the temple in Ashdod, after the Philistines captured the ark, they took it to Dagon's temple in that city. It was here, after the ark was placed in the temple, and as told in that text. The people of Ashdod awoke early the next day. There was an idol to Dagon, probably thought to be a manifestation of the deity. The idol had fallen on its face to the ground before the ark. So the people of the city took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off upon the threshold. Only his torso was left intact, if you can call it that. The actual Hebrew says that only Dagon was left to him, a phrase that has led to a minor debate over the years. Torso or trunk are likely accurate enough translations for our purposes. 
The text goes on to tell us, This is the reason why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not step on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day, likely meaning to the day when Samuel penned his tome. And considering he's thought to have died around 1012 BC, this meant that the jumping over the threshold was still going on around that time, and the temple still existed. There's actually evidence later in the Old Testament that the building was still there and the stepping over practice remained in effect. This can be found in the rarely mentioned book of Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament believed to have lived around the 7th century B.C. In his book, in the very first chapter, he wrote that when Judah is judged at some point in the future, on that day, all who leapt over the threshold will be punished, meaning all those from Judah who worshipped Dagon. As for the temple in Ashdod, mentioned in the book of 1 Maccabees, the 10th chapter reads that Simanthasia, brought forward his army, and engaged the phalanx in battle. He probably would have used his cavalry, but they were exhausted. The enemy forces were overwhelmed by the Hasmoneans and fled, with the cavalry being sent into the valley. As for the enemy, they fled to Azotus and entered Beth Dagon, the temple of their idol, for safety. But Jonathan Apis, another Hasmonean leader, burned and plundered Azotus and the surrounding towns. As for the temple of Dagon, which included those who had taken refuge in it, he burned it too. All total, there were 8,000 enemy killed that day. And that's it in the text. And before someone writes in to point it out, I'll go ahead and remind everyone that the books of Maccabees are considered canonical by the Catholic Orthodox and most Eastern Orthodox churches. But neither Protestant denominations nor any major branches of Judaism hold it in the same regard. In the outside record, this Dagon has a very long, meaning historical association, with the Canaanite word for fish. This may date back as far as the Iron Age, which would place it after Joshua and when the kingdom of Israel was united. In some places, you may see this interpreted as fish god. There are also associations with so-called mermen motifs in Assyrian art. There is some support for this in the biblical text where, in 1 Samuel, after his statue fell over, his arms and head broke off with only the trunk remaining, no mention of legs, like a fish, or half-man, half-fish, a merman. The name may also be related to the Assyrian word meaning a cloudy day, which has some researchers believing that the Canaanites associated him with the weather, maybe controlling that, along with fertility. Pull these two together, and you also get associations with agriculture more specifically grain and plows, with some even believing that Dagon either discovered both or granted them to his subjects. Polytheism is complicated. Got to get everything straight, lest you'll have no rain, food, nor children. Backing up a little, Dagon first appears in the outside record around 2500 BC in the Mari text. In these ancient Sumerian records, 
which were uncovered in what is the modern country of Syria. Dagon is usually listed among other Amorite deities, such as El and Adad. Both I've mentioned numerous times before. In the records uncovered at the Syrian archaeological site that's been identified as Ebla, and dating to around 2300 BC, Dagon sat at the head of that city's pantheon, which was comprised of some 200 deities. There, Dagon also had the titles of Lord of the Gods, along with the Lord of the Land. He had himself a consort, but she was only identified by the name, or perhaps title, Lady. Both Dagon and his female companion were worshipped in a rather large temple called Imol, which translates to the House of the Star. He was so revered in Ebla that an entire quarter of the city, along with one of its gates, were named after him. He was a primary deity of many cities in the region, a list of which I'll spare you. In other places, he was known as the Dew of the Land and the Lord of Canaan. About the same time, but in Sumerian text, Dagon is rarely mentioned, but brought up enough that we know he was known to the residents of Sumer. It was only after the rise of the Assyrians and Babylonians that he would become more prominent in the greater region. In these societies, he was thought of as being a powerful and warlike protector, to the point that he was frequently mentioned as being on the same level as Enki. In these references, his wife was also named, at least in some of the sources, as the goddess Shala. Though this point does get a bit confusing, as Shala was named in other sources as being the wife of Adad, and even less frequently partnered with Ninma. Adding to the confusion is that Dagon's wife is less frequently identified as Ashara. I know I've said it before, and no doubt will say it again, but polytheism is confusing, fluid, and varies from place to place and time to time. The legendary code of the 18th century BC Babylonian king Hammurabi, in the preface to the set of rules and regulations bearing his name, and in an attempt to legitimize what came afterwards in that famous text. King Hammurabi called himself the subduer of the settlements along the Euphrates with the help of Dagon, his creator. Also showing reverence to and the power of Dagon in that region and time is an inscription about an expedition of Narum-Sim of Akkad that translates to Narum-Sim slew Armon and Ibla with the weapon of the god Dagon, who aggrandizes his kingdom. Beliefs like this would become so prevalent that many rulers, think kings, emperors, and dictators of the time would add Dagon to their title and name. Rulers such as Eden Dagon and Ishmi Dagon, both of 20th century BC Isin, and who both predate Hammurabi and Babylon. Other inscribed references include Dagon appearing in dreams and making vows and promises to the various regional leaders. Later, and around the 14th century BC, in Ugarit, so up the coast from Canaan, in the modern country of Syria, a large temple to Dagon was built. In their society, he was third in the pecking order, behind what's known as the father god, then El 
and before Baal Sapan. Yes, that Baal. In some Ugaritic text, Dagon is one and the same as El, making him second in the hierarchy. This interpretation also helps explain why there are few temples to El, especially when compared to Dagon. Obviously, the Canaanites continue to worship Dagon, as the biblical references I walked through earlier attest to. The outside record shows the same. A stele dating to the 9th century BC and associated with the Assyrian emperor Ashurnasilpal II refers to this ruler as being the favorite of Anu and Dagon. Yet another attempt to legitimize rule over a subjected people. Dagon was also one of the three deities in Assyria that judged the dead. Later, in Neo-Babylon, he was viewed as the warden of the underworld prison of the dead, perhaps as it related to the children of another deity. A 5th century BC Sidonese text refers to the lands of the mighty Dagon being part of that kingdom. These lands were said to have been in the plains of Sharon, which was one and the same as the coastal plain of Israel. The actual inscription roughly translates from Phoenician as, The Lord of Kings gave us Dor and Joppa, the mighty lands of Canaan, which are in the plains of Sharon, in accordance with the important deeds which I did. The I in this case is King Eshmanazar, and the text was found on his sarcophagus. And this gets me back to the text of Joshua if only for a minute. What got me here was the city of Beth Dagon, which at least in this case was in the territory allotted to the tribe of Asher. And Asher's territory was on the coast and included what is known from other sources as the Plains of Sharon, multiple independent attestation, in this case at least of a small sort. There are other ancient textual sources that conflate Dagon with the Phoenician deity Marnas, who is often compared to the Greek Zeus. Much of this is related to two overlapping ideas. The first is that the Phoenicians were the Sea Peoples, and that they originated from the Aegean region, what would become Greece. The second is that the attributes of all three deities were remarkably similar. References to Dagon would continue as late as the 4th century AD in the first book of Ethiopian Maccabees. This is one of the three books of the Ethiopian Orthodox Old Testament and are only very rarely considered canonical. Despite their names, they are completely different in content and subject from the various better-known books of Maccabees, considered canonical in the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions. One more thing before moving on, and that's the association of Dagon with a so-called fish god. 11th century Jewish Old Testament commentator Rashi used this association with a fish in his interpretation of the destruction of the idol when the ark was placed in the same room, like I covered earlier. The actual Rashi quote is that, It is said that Dagon, from his navel down, had a form of a fish, and from his navel up, the form of a man, as it is said, his two hands were cut off. This only became widely accepted by researchers in the 19th and 20th centuries, making it a very recent development, at least in a historical context. 
This was partially related to the self-styled mermen found in both Assyrian and Phoenician art. Do note that this association with fish, or the male version of a mermaid, is not without critics. Most of these detractors point out that the mermen motif is commonly found in coastal cities and may be nothing more than the association of a high-ranking deity with an abundant catch. Just like inland farmers associate Dagon with an abundant grain harvest. And that's it for this Canaanite deity. On to the village that bore his name. This place is better known as Beit John. In its present form, it's primarily a Druze village on Mount Meron, located in the north of the modern country of Israel. Despite being relatively close to the coast, it's at a high elevation, roughly 3,100 feet, 940 meters above sea level, making it one of the highest populated places in the country of Israel. And the reason I'm covering it is it may be the same place as Beth Dagon, which was located on the boundary of the tribe of Asher. The ancient village noted by Joshua is thought to have been built atop the same hill, with many of the stones used in the construction of the old city being reused through this day in obviously newer houses. There's something to be said about a house built atop a rock and built with rocks, but the reuse of the same stones isn't the only thing connecting the ancient people to the present inhabitants. There also have been uncovered cisterns and tombs that date to the period before and during Joshua. Before the rest of the history, a little about the location. Owing to the elevation in sight, Beth Dagon has a cool climate, even in summer, especially notable for the region. From the crest of the mountain, and especially true on a clear day, the Sea of Galilee is visible to the east, and the Mediterranean to the west. While we may think of this in a touristy, how far is the horizon sense, when invading armies are an ever-present threat, there's a definite advantage to holding the high ground. And this was the highest ground around. The history of the city would follow that of the region. Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, then Muslims. All leading up to the Crusaders, who then alternated back and forth in their control of the city with the Muslims. Towards the end of this period, local Druze families lived in small, scattered villages on the hill. At that time, the limiting factor of the total population the area could support was the availability of drinking water. What source had been anciently available had either dried up or had been lost to the passage of time, which held true until either the late 13th or early 14th century. As legend has it, at that time, two Druze hunters in search of hyraxes, aka rock rabbits, happened upon a cave. Inside, they found an ancient cistern filled with water. What followed shortly afterwards was a small village, of the permanent sort. It was here that several families formed a place that would become the modern village of Beit Jean, and at the site of what was thought to be the ancient Beth Dagon. As a reminder, the Druze are a small Middle Eastern religious sect. They hold to what's been described as an eclectic system of doctrines combined with an extreme cohesion and loyalty among adherents. 
A bond that has kept its members living in a compact region that incorporates parts of Lebanon, Syria, and Israel for over a millennia. The Druze faith began in Egypt as an offshoot of Shia Islam in the 10th century. But that's enough about that. Back to the village of Beit Jan. Not long after the Druze village was established on the hill, and in 1517, it was incorporated into the Ottoman Empire along with the rest of the region. Fortunately for us, the Ottomans kept better records than their predecessors. Among these were a late 16th century tax record that shows a population of 102 households and taxes paid on silk spinning, goats, beehives, an olive oil press, and potentially a separate press for grapes. These same records show that every resident was Muslim. My assumption is that since the Druze were an offshoot of Islam, they were all counted as Muslim. A mid-18th century German missionary visited the village recording that the residents made water skins and grew exceptional grapes, noteworthy for both their size and flavor. That makes me wonder about the grapes the spies brought back from Canaan, as recorded in the Book of Numbers. The 19th century American biblical scholar Edward Robinson portrayed Beit Jean as a large, well-built village with houses made of limestones, also noting 260 male residents, all of whom were Druze. About two decades later, a French explorer counted only 200 people, and also made note that it appeared to have suffered a recent decline, given the abandoned, deteriorating houses. Fortunately, he offered a reason for the shrinking population noting that many former residents had fled the village for the region known as the Horan in an effort to escape conscription, presumably by the Ottomans. This was about the same time the Ottomans were gearing up to fight the Russians in what's become known as the Russo-Turkish War. This French explorer also made note of the exceptional grapes, even recording that the vines grew along the ground of the hill itself. Other details of the village were recorded in the 19th century, with a rebound in the population following the defeat of the Ottomans by the Russians. By this time, the population was about 75% Muslim, with the balance being Druze, though a census from a few years later recorded everyone as being Druze. While the Ottomans' records are great from a macro-historical context, the specific details are often problematic. After the fall of the Ottomans in World War I, Beit Jan would become part of British Mandatory Palestine. Eventually, it would be incorporated into the nation of Israel, in the north, about 7 miles, 11 kilometers, from their border with Lebanon. And that's it for Beth Dagan turned Beit Jan. I have a minute or two left, which gives me just enough time to cover the village of Kabul, another place marking the boundary of the territory allotted to Asher. It's southwest of Beth Dagon, placing it too in modern Israel. Not much is known about the village, which is why I only need a few minutes to cover it. Besides this mention in Joshua, it's only found in one other place in the text, in 1 Kings 9. This part of the biblical narrative records a portion of the history that occurred while Solomon was king over the united Israel. 
There we learn that King Solomon gave a district in the northwest of Galilee, near the port of Tyre. About ten cities were given to King Haram I of Phoenicia, in repayment for his help in building Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. But Haram was not pleased with the gift, referring to the cities as the land of Kabul, the name probably meaning they were good for nothing. For clarity, and as seen in the footnotes of both New Revised Standard and NIV, Kabul is phonetically similar to the ancient Hebrew phrase that translates to good for nothing. The writer of 1 Kings adds that the cities are called this phrase to this day. Josephus made his own translation attempt, using the phrase, what does not please, perhaps sourced from Phoenician. Other writers have proposed that Haram was not pleased with the payment because the villages were rather small, therefore not adding much value to the Phoenician Empire. There are others that propose something completely opposite, and that's that Kabul may be of Aramaic origin and may translate to the word clad, like the residents were adorned with gold and silver. Who knows? Archaeological excavations have occurred at the location believed to be the ancient site. They have uncovered an Israelite settlement dating to the 12th century BC. Over top of these ruins was built a Phoenician fortification dating to about the 10th century BC. The dates of both of these align with the biblical gifting of the city from Solomon to Haram. The history of the city follows that of the region in general, with little that is remarkable, excepting one brief instance. In the First Jewish-Roman War, in 66 AD, Kabul was attacked by the Roman general Gallus. When the residents of Kabul saw the approaching Roman army, they fled. Roman leadership then allowed their soldiers to plunder, then burned the city, and then they left. The next year, rebel leader Josephus used the city as his headquarters while fighting in the Galilee region. And that's it for Kabul, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue pushing through the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.